Lonely Monk Productions. Man, the Eagles just lost the Super Bowl, and I'm going to be honest, I ain't got shit to say. No John this week. Let's just start this episode. Hey, yo, displace the guilt. What's good, friends and family, neighbors near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life, dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. John Lynn Hertz. Pour a little out, the man did his thing. A.k.a. Nate 3.0. Back Added again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. On today's episode, I am joined by filmmaker and friend Zach Eastman to talk about his life and his career. And guys, it's a long one. So I'm going to spare you all these upfronts. Like, subscribe, rate, review, do all those things. Follow on the socials at Yo That's My John. Visit the website www.yothatsmyjohn.com. Sign up for the mailing list while you're there. Blah, 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 blah. You know it all. You've heard it before. So let's get right into it. My guest today is a Denver-based podcaster, filmmaker, and creative project management specialist. He is the producer and host of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, a podcast dedicated to discussing the laughter and lessons from films of Hollywood's golden age. He is also currently writing a book about the forgotten history of Jack Benny's film career called You Can't Film Jack. You can also find him this weekend, February 17th through the 19th, as a contributor and organizer of the Virtual Jack Benny Convention, a yearly virtual event celebrating the life and work of Jack Benny, and featuring guests such as Carol Burnett, Neil Gaiman, Leonard Malton, and so many others. Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Zach Eastman. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Zach Eastman. Thank you for joining me on Yo, That's My John, Zach. You, you got Zach Eastman on this show? That guy's a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck I've been him. Wanting, I've been wanting to have you on for quite some time. Even pro- Am I muted? Why nope, you're not like muted. No, okay. you're good. I'll cut that out. It, one, two, three, four. Was, hello, Mac. One, two, three, four. Hello, Mac. It was saying <laughs> mute on my screen, and I couldn't figure out why. I might even just leave that in. It's tasty. What I was saying was, uh, I am so happy to have you on this show. I've been wanting to have you on um, since the beginning, actually, the inception, because you're someone who I absolutely adore and someone whose brain <laughs> I would love, uh, love, love, love to pick. So, um, yeah, man, thanks for coming on. Of course, man. I was like, I... I you know, it's it's funny because I'm thinking about it. It's it's it, in a couple of months it will be about a year that we kind of reconnected um, on a chat basis, um, and me kind of like like getting into your podcast and learning what you did, and then having you come on to to my show to talk about a film that I never. I'm so glad I know exists now, um, and just like and and just learning about a different subsection of the 60s cinema that i wasn't even heretofore aware of like it's one of those like great gifts that you bring in your experiences it's like i never know what nate's gonna drop as a reference i i literally i look at your feed and at one point you'll be talking about great hip-hop and then the next one you're going like here check out the paris hilton video like what what what? (laughs) how did we get from a to z here (laughs) 
<laughs> well, the, the, the Paris Hilton thing, um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but um, I was in the running um, to be a cast member on her reality show that she had on MTV. So there's a yep. little bit of there's a little bit of my own biography in sharing that Paris Hilton song. <laughs> I do remember that. But I, but it was one of those things where I saw it like in the consistency of the thread and I was like, you know, Nate's got a good point. Why can't I also talk about maybe like film biopics about the golden age of Hollywood and just take a left turn or even just be like, hey, if you like the public enemy, you're going to love Casino. Like just just yeah. start throwing in modern stuff into the Ballyhoo feed because at the moment it's currently just mainly golden age Hollywood stuff. Um, but yeah, no, like I should just start doing more modern stuff. Why not? Like why not? Why not incorporate all of cinema? Like, that's the problem with my show is that I kind of put my pigeonhole myself into what constitutes the term yesteryear. Right. <laughs> and sure. I, have to dis- I have to make a decision about extending that or not. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll say this. And, and this is um, uh, from one podcaster to another. And this is podcast talk um, that um, might go over some people's heads. But uh-huh. ni- niching down is never a bad thing. But I think... All you have to do to be able to bring contemporary things in is, like you said, draw the parallel. So, like, if you, you know, if you're if you're talking about Public Enemy and you want to kind of, uh, you know, because of this, here is a launching pad on why we will, you know, now show, you know, its influence um, all the way through to Casino and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You just kind of have to find the way to just uh, paint it into your backbone. You know, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a and that and that's been a thought. Uh, that's been a thought process of like when do we start doing that because after episode 100 technically we've covered pretty much every genre of film that you can muster um from musical to gangster to melodrama drama regular uh drama light uh comedy drama like we've actually touched on way more genres than i would have expected to i I, like horror is the number one genre in on the show hands down it's the one that has taken up most of our time um but second might be um uh comedy and then third might be drama and now animation is building up steam um because i i'm a frustrated cartoonist deep down so i i love animation history way too much to not spend a lot of time talking about it and and we've done we've done two four-hour episodes on Disney uh, as a result of that obsession. And we did Disney in the 40s, and then we went backward and did, like, the origins. We did our Phantom Menace episode, if you will. Uh, and and it's, it's um, because it is such a loose structure with short films from Disney, and we're trying to, like, contain a lot of stuff, it ended up being, like, some of the greatest stuff I've ever done on podcasting, I feel, is that I pressed record, and me and the two other guys in the room riff on the history of disney and i mean riff uh like if listeners want to listen to the disney in the 30s episode we 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 thought we couldn't get dirtier than the first one we did and we ended up turning roy into uh quite a character roy disney quite a character uh i won't spoil it because you need to you need to hear what happens and how it just keeps running through the next three hours and you can listen to that in chunks without missing a beat like it's just like everything's kind of laid out to where you don't have to like worry about pausing the podcast you know like i i i love that feel about podcasting and what we can do like you and i can both do this is that we can go as long as we want because it is that free form 
medium that allows us to do whatever we want. My personal taste is I love the feel of an audiobook. Um, and we try as close as we can to get to that. And like our Thousand Clowns episode constitutes that to my mind. Yeah. Like, you don't have to jump in. You can skip to the plot description if you want. You don't have to hear about the, about the of the production of that film and how everything was recut. You just need to listen to the plot description. That's fine. Um, and so it's it's. I love the flexibility that this medium allows us. Um, and you're right. I can do some modern stuff, and I might actually take you up on that sooner rather than later because. That it actually makes it, it just gives me an excuse to talk about gods and monsters for three hours. I love. Yes, that exactly. So See, that's a, a very, very, very perfect example of something that still fits in the niche, but also you know brings in you, the 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 golden boy of the hour, uh, Brandon Fraser. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my god, oh my god, that man! I still haven't seen the whale yet. But I haven't I, either. I will tell you though, like I've I've accidentally inundated my girlfriend with Brendan Fraser movies between uh the like the the end of the summer to now and not inundated I mean like we just happened to be watching two different ones but we went to the mummy at the Alamo Draft House and she'd seen it before but she didn't remember it I've watched it so many times that I'm just like I'm going to quote this movie the entire time because everybody else in the theater is going to do it uh and we just we were just in awe of Brendan Fraser and then I showed her this is a left. This is a curveball for your audience. I showed her the best Looney Tunes movie, which is Looney Tunes Back in Action, uh, and we just liked watching Brendan Fraser interact with Looney Tunes. Like, it's yeah. Just, and then when I told her, I'm like, you know, he does the voice of Taz in this, right? And she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, that was like a condition of him coming on board the movie as he wanted to do the voice of Taz, um, which is like, I I can't imagine a better like, all right, I'll do your movie, but. I want to. I want to try to one up Mel Blanc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible. Uh, he's he's like he's. I'm glad that he's kind of getting his flowers and getting to come back and and do some stuff. You know, we 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 toss people away way too quickly in this industry um, that still have a lot of merit and uh, a lot I, of worth. I agree. There is there is that uh, like there's that uh, uh, there's that part of me that wishes that some other actors would come like heretofore up to the uh, like up to the to the level of what Brendan Fraser is able to get himself into. Like I I want to see this kind of like because he kind of dips in and out of stuff and I don't see him much anymore. But Hugo Weaving is somebody that I'd like yeah. to see kind of resurge. It's almost like I'm glad he wasn't in Matrix um, Resurrections because that would have just been like well they're just carrying on the norm and whatnot. It gives him space to actually have some kind of like great Oscar role that he's never gotten really to have. And uh, and Ian McKellen, I I'm so happy that he's kind of like finished with the sci-fi roles more or less so that he can go back to doing what he does with Bill Condon best, which is I'm going to stick Ian McKellen in some kind of like detective story or some kind of like repressed drama. Like I haven't seen the good liar yet, but I've, 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 I've been told the plot and I'm like, Oh, I want to watch him do that. Um, or like Mr. Holmes where he's playing Sherlock Holmes and it's the most heartbreaking thing you've ever seen. I want more of that out of Ian McKellen because He's so ingrained in us as Gandalf and Magneto to the point where I, I even can't think of him in any other way. But that performance he gives in Gods and Monsters as James Whale is like one of the most heartbreaking things that has ever happened in yeah. film. Yeah, and he it's brings such a, 
Go I was going to say it's, it's such a complicated role. Sorry, <laughs> he brings he brings like such a a like understood sadness <laughs> to yeah. every performance that he gives. That like I just um, he's he's absolute treasure, absolute treasure. But let's let's jump in the way back. Let's uh, uh, enough about Ian McKellen and enough Ooh. about Hugo Weaving. Let's talk about Zach. Tell me a little bit about um, growing up. Where were you born? Um, I was uh, born in uh, uh, Glendale, California, actually, but I, um, my parents moved to Colorado when I was young, and, um, and I grew up, uh, how do I put it, um, rather okay with being with myself, but also sad that I wasn't like necessarily the most social human being in the world, but, um, but I found uh, my love of film pretty early on, and, um, and then uh, I think actually it was... Uh, Star Wars, like everything else, is the one thing that kind of uh, brings you out of your shell, so to speak. Um, and that happened for me, um, as it does with pretty much any film person you talk to within the last, being born within the last 30 to 40 years. Um, but also Titanic, um, you know, it's a film, it's, 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 I remember seeing it and wondering how the hell are they making that boat, like, capsized, like, this can't be real, what is going on here? Um and so growing up for me, like I stumbled a little bit into the things that I love um, by, by happenstance of pop culture just kind of being put in front of me. Um, and like, but also there's some odd choices in there too. Like my love of time travel started with Bill and Ted. Back to the Future had no uh, influence whatsoever until I was about 15. So, um, but yeah, I, I got into that. And then a, a lot of my... Uh, love of vintage entertainment because we've obviously alluded to it with Ballyhoo um, is that uh, my, my grandfather was probably my, my biggest hero in life and still is. Um, He's not my biological grandfather. He was a, um, he was a step grandfather, but he was, it's, it made no difference. Um, I just knew him as grandpa Pete. Um, And when I was younger, you know, I was into cartoons. I was into, you know, space stuff and like other things like that but he um he saw me being intrigued by the idea of sherlock holmes and we were at cracker barrel um one night um a lot of weird inf- uh, instances in my life happened at cracker barrels um like that's why i found out i was gonna have a nephew so cracker barrel is the center of the universe i guess for me um but they used to sell cassette tapes um of old-time radio and i didn't know what old-time radio was uh, but my de- my grandfather got me the Sherlock Holmes tape of the um, of two episodes. It was one with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, and uh, the other one was Sir John Gilgood and Orson Welles. And Orson Welles plays Moriarty in that one. So I went, took it home to listen to it, and I thought it was going to be an audiobook because I remembered audiobooks. I'm like, yeah, that's how Charles Kuralt is narrating Star Wars or whatever. It's like that's that's what I know this for. And then suddenly I'm hearing an ad for quinine tablets and cooking sherry. And I'm like, what? This is, why is there an ad? Like, why is there commercials? Why is there commercials on radio? That makes no sense. And I started learning more about old time radio as a kid. So like around the age of like like 10 or 11, like I started really getting into that, 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 that era of entertainment. And it led me to a lifelong obsession with Jack Benny um, a lifelong appreciation of Orson Welles. Uh, it, it's it's brought me a lot of uh, uh, 
of uh, comfort when I'm not thinking about film or I'm not thinking about uh, other um, uh, uh, other parts of my life, you know, and and uh, there. But but I I grew up kind of like ingesting everything like when I was when I was younger, I was ingesting like modern films, but also some classic films. As I got older, I moved away from video games and started getting more into older films and watching Hitchcock um, on a consistent basis. Uh, I got into Scorsese. I got into Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino. uh, And those things kind of built up into a appreciation of all of it by the time that I left high school and went into college. So there's like a, growing up for me, was really just, like the pre-education for everything that I do now. Um, it was very much the training ground because I had friends, but it wasn't for me. I, looking back on it now, I realized that the happiest times I had in my life more often than not were to myself watching the things that I enjoyed. And then, uh, and then occasionally like, uh, like anything you do find people you connect with. Like I, I found people that liked to talk about Mel Brooks. Um, I found people that liked to talk about, uh, Jack Benny, because there was a whole fan club on the internet uh, that it, that started off first as a mailing list. Uh, so i i found my I found my tribe, so to speak, um, through uh, through trial and error. And uh, so, growing up for me was kind of like discovering what it is I love, um, and with within that also just holding on to it as something that gives me comfort in my dark periods. Um, so that, I mean, that's kind of like my growing up story essentially is just like, it was really literally just ingesting film and radio and television and, um, you know, cause that's something I don't like, I don't do television that much anymore, but man, I watched a shit ton of television. Yeah. Like I watched, I, I dipped through so many series on and off. Uh, I got into uh, like the Simpsons is a lifelong obsession. That's a, th- that's a family connection thing. And the family loved the Simpsons. Uh, and I will still support that show existing as long as it has, even if I'm not caught up. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but like, um, you know, discovering things like Seinfeld um, as a kid, actually, <laughs> you want to hear a fun childhood story? I Always. saw the, fin- I saw the finale of Seinfeld before I knew what Seinfeld was. My dad had it on and I was about eight and I couldn't understand. And I remember asking him, why did they go to jail? (laughs) And then about four years later, I got the first season and the second season, like when they started, when Columbia finally started putting them out on DVD, the more I got into it, I'm like, these guys belong in prison. The moment one. I just love that kind of like suddenly your brain kicks in all of a sudden and you're just like, holy shit. <laughs> like, like yeah, they belong the, in prison. Everybody in Arrested Development sucks. Like, <laughs> the, Those are my favorite kinds of uh, things where it's where you, there's there's no redeeming quality. And yet, for some reason, you're still drawn to them or whatnot. Well, but, so back then, you know, you're you're kind of, you know, um, bathing in all of this content and, you know, film and radio and stuff like that. When does it click in your head that you're like, I want to create this? Like, ah, um, pretty early on. Uh, I would want to say about like fifth grade. I was like, I want to make movies. Yeah. Um, or, or I think like, and like part of it is I think I actually wanted to, I wanted to be an actor 
And then I started learning about directors or making the things and having a camera in your hand. And I'm like, I want to I want to make this stuff. But I didn't have a foundation from the pop culture that I was ingesting. I didn't have a foundation of like how that worked or what a voice is like. It's just a general thing. It's just like, I just want to make movies, which is equivalent, yeah. in, which can be interpreted in some equivalents to like, I just want to film things. Um, but but then I, but as I started clicking into this, that's what I would want to do. Uh, I started learning about what a director is and what they do. And I never thought about writing at all. Like, that's a key thing. I never learned about writing until getting into um, Kevin Smith and his uh, approach to write what you know and, you know, make a movie with your friends kind of vibe. That, that pushed me out of my shell. I had been told for a long time prior that I was good at English composition, more or less. Uh, grammar is just my my kryptonite, um, like honestly. Um, and so, but I started learning how to use my voice as a result of that, and that's when I started really writing scripts and little bits of dialogue here and there, and just really trying to tell a story that I want to tell. Um, so it, that's when it started clicking. It was those formative years between like 10 and 17 when I was just like really starting to learn, well, what, what is it that I want to do with this medium that I'm aware of? But in the same point, I was also kind of learning about like, okay, I, I also want to know everything about film history that I can. And then you open the book on film history and you're like, oh my God, I kind of want to cry. Like, yeah. <laughs> so much, so much ups and downs, so much depression, so much, so much terrible shit going on. And, um, but that, that was kind of like the crux point. And I, so I kind of had a set goal in my head as early on as that, that I want to be involved in film. And I, I don't know if you've ever had this, um, but like, have you ever had that, like that, that reaction from people where, they kind of look at you in awe about like, man, you know exactly what you want to do. Mm -hmm. I had that happen to me more than once in high school, and I kind of didn't know how to respond to that. I feel, I, I, I mean, I remember being a little bit like dismissive of it, and I wish I hadn't been. Like, that's one of those things you wish you could take back. But like, I, I shouldn't have dismissed it. I should have said like something positive, like, well, you'll, everybody will find what they're good at. Um, but like, I never really thought about it until they were pointing it out. Like, oh my God, I've kind of already predestined my path. That's very strange. <laughs> like, yeah, it's I just so didn't funny. know any other way to think about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that because I literally this weekend, uh, uh, my fiance Katie and I, we were having this conversation about, um, that, um, I have a character in a screenplay I wrote one time, um, that was a, a painter and he has this, this monologue about how he decided early on that um, what he wanted to do is not something that you like go to school and then you get a job and you're just a painter. And it was, you know, essentially me talking about myself with film and music because, it, you know, I decided everything that interests me has always been something that isn't it, it's not based on merit and it's not based on anything other than the, really luck and drive. Yeah, right. Like it's, <laughs> it's like equal parts luck and drive. And yeah. um 
And and I was saying, I feel like I'm going to be the opposite of like, um, you know, those parents who are always like, um, you know, try to make their kid follow in their steps and, and fulfill the dreams they never fulfilled. I'm going to be the complete opposite. And if I ever have a child, I'm going to make them like an accountant or a banker or something practical that they can get a job mm-hmm. and become rich in because uh, but but, you know, but so like, yeah, I, I had it figured out early on what I wanted to do. It's just sadly, I picked something that um, isn't easy. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Well, and that's and that's kind of how we found pod. We found podcasting, though, as a good backup, because like I think like. Like anybody, like I, you know, like you have your first podcast you listen to. Mine was Smodcast because I didn't know what a, what the hell a podcast was. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like I, I'd barely gotten an iPod at that point. Um, and I tried my hand at podcasting when I was younger and it was like, I, 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 you know, it, it I, but I didn't like, I didn't have anything I wanted to talk about really. Like I, right. I was just talking with my friends. Um, but as I got older, um, and was milling around through film school, I found Real Nerds Podcast. Um, and was fortunate enough to be a guest on there. And then I just, uh, never really stopped being there. So, uh, you know, but we found our, uh, we found where we wanted to be. And I'm actually glad that I like, like found podcasting in the same breadth of me learning about what I wanted to do with film because it gave me avenues that I wasn't expecting. Like you can tell a story through this medium without, the production value uh, that involves that's involved in making a movie, and you can't um, and you can, there's things you can do with the audible visual uh, the audible medium that you can't do with the visual medium, um, and so there's there's a there's a blessing within that that I'm very appreciative to have found. So like I found how to combine my energy for film with my love of recording things with my friends, yeah. um, and that's 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 the big blossom point to where I'm at in my life right now is just like, if I hadn't have found those things simultaneously, I literally wouldn't be here talking to you, let alone doing anything that I've done with you or all of my friends that I've had on the show. Um, so that's kind of a, it's a weird blessing that I didn't realize. It's like, what you wanted, what really wanted to do was there all along, Jimmy. You just yeah, had to yeah, believe yeah. in yourself. Well, <laughs> it, 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 it was there all along. And it actually, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead real quick um, because here's a question I've, I've often wondered, and maybe you have, and maybe I'm just not aware of it. But um, with your love of radio history and, uh, and, and with your love of film and with your love of podcasting, have, have you, uh, you, you work in an audio format. Have you thought about doing any kind of serialized radio, um, production at all? <laughs> there is, um, there have been, uh, scripts written. Yeah. Um, and by scripts, I mean script. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize the potential of the medium right away. Um, like when we, well, like when, when, when I first heard Smodcast, uh, and, and I'm sure you had the same thing, which is just like, man, it's just a conversation with friends. Yeah. And I just thought that's what podcasting was. And I, and I dipped into other shows like, how did this get made? And, um, you made it weird with Pete Holmes. Um, and, uh, and so like a lot of it had to do with comics that I liked at that time. Like Doug Benson's Doug loves movies was a, was a, became a big influence at a certain point because of certain guests that he would have on and the construction of comedy. But I didn't think about narrative storytelling at all. Like I just didn't think that's what it was built for. And then I, um, uh, for context, um, uh, I, I, I milled around in alcoholism, um, 
uh, for a good chunk of my 20s. And um, as I was trying to get better, I discovered a show called uh, Secret History of Hollywood, um, which is done by Adam Roach out in the UK. Um, And he did a thing about Sherlock Holmes, the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce radio and film series. And he told it like a story. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Like, you can't do a, you can't do a, an, a, a, an all spanning biopic on the radio. That doesn't make any sense. And yet he does it. And it's incredible. And then he does other series about Alfred Hitchcock. And then he does one about the Warner brothers. And then he does Val Luton. And it just, it, it really blew my mind. Um, now, when I decided to do what I'm doing, I, I've, I, at the time, I reserved myself to, I'm good with talking with people. I'm not good at constructing that narrative. But now, I am dipping my toe into that because I do want to see where the medium goes. Um, I, and like part of what I want to do with my show is m- move it into a classroom aesthetic. And from there, you can tell some stories. Um, and it's like... You know, I I want to try to dip my hand into that, but like audio production, like old time radio, is interesting because uh, I I've dealt with it in a different way. Um, Zoom recreations. Um, so instead of doing it on a podcast per se, uh, a lot of what I learned how to uh, do in terms of how radio works as an art has been seeing recreations done over Zoom, which was very much a pandemic. Um, uh, result um that happened when a lot of people couldn't do their recreations live at a lot of these old-time radio um gatherings and groups um and so i've started learning more about how to do radio recreation from there and since then i've written an adaptation of uh an old suspense episode and by that it really was transcribing and then maybe adding some stuff here and there uh and then the other one was um doing uh a a spinoff of Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. And because uh, for anybody who hasn't seen Rear Window out there, it's about this turd in a wheelchair (laughs) who doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. (laughs) Yes, there's a murder that happens off in the middle of the block. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. And so in order for Grace Kelly to to impose the radical idea of be with me jeff (laughs) she becomes an active detective where he is an inactive detective in the movie because he's in a wheelchair and my my leg's broken i can't do anything wow and so she starts being the detective in the movie she's the one who physicalizes what he would normally be doing if he wanted to sneak into a house and i was like then this is i need a detective series with her and i'm part of a film club with secret history of hollywood where that got brain sparked immediately by everybody going like, write it, write it, write it. So I did. And I called it the adventures of Lisa Fremont. And it was basically what if she and the nurse from that's taking care of Jeff opened up a detective agency. And it ended up being this uh, slight homage to Hitchcock. And at the time that I wrote it, Norman Lloyd had passed away. Um, the great Norman Lloyd, who was, um, the guy, uh, he's, he's, he's the, he's the villain at the end of Saboteur that falls off of the Empire State Building. Um, and so I wrote him into the mix and 
because of the current culture we live in where somehow Nazis have risen again. I, uh, <laughs> which I'm like, fuck. Um, we were uh, done with Nazis. They were, we well, were done with them. <laughs> this is the problem with learning about film history and history in general is you realize like, oh shit, this undercurrent's always been here. Fuck. The Nazis <laughs> um, were always there. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's like, the, it, it's like realizing that Captain America Winter Soldier is the smartest Marvel movie because of what, <laughs> what Johan is saying over the computer going just like, oh, has it been here? It's shield. Like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but I and added that into the mix and tried to tried my hand at a, uh, a sort of a feminist parable. But I I make no claim to be anywhere versed in how to do that correctly. Um, and so, like, uh, I, I, I would want rewrites, uh, preferably by a female writer to be like, do I need to remove or shift anything? But that is one of those instances where I have been inspired to do it. And I have thought about what would happen if you wrote scripts on a monthly basis centered around stuff we discuss in Ballyhoo um, and almost make them like lost performances. And that's something that I'm working on on and off right now is like, how do you do a monthly series about potential programs that might've existed in old time radio? Because a lot of that material doesn't exist anymore. We're, we have maybe, 15 to 20% of the output that radio produced in its golden age. Um, and thankfully that's because there's a lot of foresight on certain people's ends. Um, the Lux radio theater is an example. Cecil B. DeMille's family kept all of their discs and then they donated them to Spurdvac. Uh, Jack Benny had recordings done, um, because he would listen back to them after the first broadcast they would do during that Sunday night. And then, figure out if they need to tighten anything. And then when they do their second broadcast for the West Coast, they would improve upon that first recording. So there's a lot of times where you're actually hearing the first thing that goes out and not the second thing that goes out. Um, but, the, but the rest of it is gone. Like, it's, it's all kind of just scattered to the winds. And, like, you're lucky if you can find stuff, particularly during World War II, because there's so much material that was used for those transcription discs that they had to replace with glass. Like, so a, a, a traditional aluminum disc would have been replaced with glass. And what, what does glass do? It can scratch easily if not taken care of, and it can break easily. So that stuff's like, we're lucky it exists. So I kind of wanted to try to fill the gaps of radio history with that of just like supposed programming. Like, what if there was just this random cop show that just existed that only lasted a season? <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, and just kind of play around with that. So like, yeah, it has come to mind, but audio production, like anything, requires the talents that film production does. You need actual actors. You need a sound designer that, which I am not. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm I'm a podcaster. I'm not a sound designer. I've I know the basic principles. I just don't. I'm not good at it. Um, and uh, and you need good technicians to produce it. Like you need to be, make sure everybody's leveled and equalized on on point. So it's not just your mic. It's everybody's mic. Um, and you have to you have to make sure that you are keeping the tempo of the kind of show you want to make. Like, are you making a comedy? Are you making a drama? So. Like at the moment, it's it's kind of like okay, write it first and then see what you can get as production assets. But it's it's something that I imagine still would cost less than making a film because you're not expected to have camera setups. You don't have to really do the same kind of retakes that you would have to do. So I do want to play in that medium because one, it sounds less stressful, 
Yeah. And number two, I would love to figure out, well, I'm, I can be a visual person uh, when I'm learning. What happens when I'm, when I'm blindfolded? And I can discover, like, all right, well, this is how this transition will work since we don't have any visuals. And not using the same line of dialogue, which is like, I'll knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. Right, knock right, or, right, like, right. get him. He's got the gun right over there in the corner next to the left. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Giving specific directions. <laughs> I just it, it's 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 an avenue that I think like um, your your background has kind of pointed you towards almost like it, it it's almost like the logical the logical conclusion of a of a, a a life kind of buried in in radio and film and and kind of that narrative storytelling like I'd be really interested to kind of see you tackle something like that like I, I think you're the the right man for the job <laughs> it's you know what's so funny is that like everybody I, I used to think this too that like oh radio old-time radio is dead like narrative radio is gone it's dead it's we have sitcoms now we got television and television killed it and, and good for it. But guess what? Podcasting somehow popped up out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Seemingly. It, it seems like that to me. Um, uh, and now we have a chance to do that again. And under similar auspices, this can still be provided for free. Right. You know, unless you're unless you're doing the Spotify thing, I guess. I don't know. But there's but there's a uh, there's a beauty about that of just like, man, old time radio came back and it came back with a vengeance because now, you know, how many how many things are uh, Warner Brothers putting out now um, while they're also slowly disintegrating? How many things are they putting out uh, that are audio driven? Like there's a Batman podcast uh, going on right now where it's telling a story. There's literally a Looney Tunes one about Daffy and Bugs Bunny on a Thanksgiving Day road trip. I, I, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm like, that's remarkable. Like that we have really like flipped back to the desire to hear that audible experience. And, and also in the form of documentary, like uh, 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 Serial um, has done that in, in stride. Um, uh, there's the, 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 the Black Tapes podcast, I think, is out of Seattle. It's like kind of like a ghost thing or something like that. Um, and so like there's it's kind of remarkable that we've been able to kind of come full circle so i'm i'm open to it because i just thought that this medium would never exist again and that this was just this was just the the band-aid until television came along or something like that and instead it's become this legitimate art form for this generation because you know like you and i have heard a radio drama before right but but we but but there are many people of our, around our age, um, or and, and I would point more towards my generation and younger, who think of it as a novelty, or they just think like, well, this is this is just how you imitate a, a guy in the forties, and instead it, it's it's actually blossomed into this legitimate form of entertainment that people will prefer over film, television. Um, it's smaller scale, but it's still there. Um, so I'm happy to be a part of that experience, even if it's how we end up doing it on Ballyhoo, which is more often than not because I can't not try to do voiceover like heroes of mine from when I was a kid. I do try to bring the actual figures into the story, whether if it's, if it's Orson Welles or Jimmy Stewart or Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, (laughs) uh, because that it's not a, it's not a Walt Disney voice, but I was just like, man, like I, all I can draw from is saving Mr. Banks for that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
I can't do a flat Midwestern. I don't think anybody can anymore. Um, uh, so like that stuff is the closest I've gotten to now. And the next step will be to actually get legitimate actors in the room and really try to push forward into the narrative realm and really try stuff like there's certain things you can't do. Like, I don't think you're ever going to get a world war of the worlds done ever again like that. It's a beautiful idea, <laughs> but now you just, you just literally just sparked something in my head. I think the way you would have to do it is you create a regular podcast that's kind of based on something. And then somewhere around like episode five or six is where you would have to like start to drop in like, you know, I, I, now obviously it couldn't be a uh, alien invasion of sorts. But like, you know, you start to do, you, you make something that seems pedestrian. And then like, actually, I think five is way too long because people usually drop out somewhere around three. So, mm-hmm. like, end of episode two, kind of start to tease, like, hey, something weird came up in our investigation this week where blah, 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 you know. That's that's a smart idea because there are things that, because podcasting, like, internet radio doesn't really exist the way it did in the early aughts. Like, that was a, that was a phenomenon that happened for a second if you had iTunes and stuff like that. Um, but the, the, the very idea of the play and pause button has kind of taken away certain things that you won't get again. And one of them is if you listen to War of the Worlds, it's one of the it's it's one of the greatest things not because of what it says, but what it doesn't say. The silence in that show is is chilling. I have heard that thing year after year after year since I was in middle school. And I cannot tell you how many times I still get the chills when you have the reporter out in the middle of the Martian invasion finally beginning, and then suddenly the microphone just cuts like cut. And then that's when they have this long pause. And then they and then you go, ladies and gentlemen, due to our circumstances beyond our control, we're unable to continue our broadcast at Grover's Mill. That is stuff that is sort of lost from it. I think you can replicate it. You can do it in a di- it would have to be a different way. It's almost like we haven't – I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like we've only begun to understand what podcasting can be. Like I think there's still things about the medium that we haven't dissected or really considered in terms of the ability to kind of fuck with the medium. Um, but I'm not an Orson Welles. I'm not going to figure that out. I hope someone does because I want to be shocked when I listen to something. I want to be genuinely afraid um, without within limits, obviously, I get covered levels. But I, I want to have that same feeling that I get listening to a close to hundred year program that still has a lot of power and, frankly, a lot of unfortunate influence on the world we live in today and and the way that deception has taken on more insidious forms. And I, but I, I have to believe that this medium will be able to provide that answer at the moment that it needs to everything happens when it's supposed to it doesn't you don't force it like it's just going to happen on accident like i have figured out how you do um war of the worlds on ballyhoo but i won't spoil it here because i am trying to actually construct that for um halloween and it's gonna it's gonna actually require me to uh go into the drama realm that you're talking about but i'd have to be very um 
uh, I'd have to be very uh, careful on how I schedule it so that I don't burn myself out. Because <laughs> I'm not going to get it all in the same week. I'll put it that way. Right, right, right. The um, you, you know, you kind of touched upon something early on that um, it, that it were uh, you're about to embark on yet again is um, your involvement uh, with the Jack Benny community. Um, is it, you, you're about to um, partake in uh, the virtual convention uh, this year. Um, mm-hmm. How did, how did you get involved in the first place? Not just as a fan um, and and in the community, but as a, uh, a more than just an active participant, but um, you know, contributor, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, I, it has to begin with listening to Jack for the first time. That's where the story starts. Um, uh, at a certain point in my fandom in old time radio, I came across Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, which if, for people who don't know, it's Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist. Charlie McCarthy was one of his three major dummies. And uh, I actually learned about that uh, them having a radio show through Leonard Malton's little behind-the-scenes uh, interview on Fun and Fancy Free because Edgar and Charlie are in the movie with Mortimer Snerd. And so I was consuming as much as I could of Edgar and Charlie, and this was a pre-YouTube era, so it was tapes or nothing. And uh, my dad got me at Costco this comedy superstars box set that had like seven to nine episodes of Charlie McCarthy, and I'm like, this is the gold mine. I don't care about <laughs> anything else in here, really. Uh, but... I wanted to listen to a Charlie McCarthy with my dad. And he's like, well, can we first listen to this? And he pulls out one of the Jack Benny tapes in the collection. And it's Jack Benny with his guest Groucho Marx. And I'm like, I mean, I know who Groucho Marx is and I've seen duck soup. I'll, I'll listen to Groucho. And then suddenly this, this, this voice talking to Groucho comes up and I didn't get it at first. I didn't get the humor. I was like, I was maybe just one year too long, too young to fully get it. But when I ran through the Charlie McCarthy stuff, I started listening to other stuff on the set, Burns and Allen, uh, Abbott and Costello. And Jack came up in that rotation. I think he was actually probably next because my dad wanted to listen to it. And I suddenly heard Phil Harris, the voice of Baloo the Bear, on this radio program. And he's this drunken band leader. Uh, and I'm hearing like Mel Blank. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then as I kept listening through that fascination, I started learning about the character of Jack, which is this miserly, vainglorious, uh, would-be Lothario, uh, like just it's, it's all of our worst traits shoved into one character. And somehow it clicks. That it's like, here's a guy that I, I don't like relate to him directly, but like all of the issues that he has, I connect to on some level, even as a young kid of 10. And it's also kind of funny to listen to this sad sap character uh, get humiliated all the time and listen to the jokes that he gives his cast. Um, and I joined the fan club um, online not too long after. You finally learn, hey, there's a Jack Benny fan club that exists and Laura Leibowitz um, is the uh, longstanding founder and president of it. Um, And we met when I was 10 years old online cut to 2020. I start doing yesteryear Valley who reviews a podcast. I had kept in touch with Laura, even as that message board went away and it became more of a Facebook thing, which I still participated in. 
and I was doing Ballyhoo, and I'm like, I gotta have a Jack Benny episode, and I need to get Laura on this. So we talked, and we we caught up on some like, how's your pandemic going and whatnot. And we always kept in touch, but we never really like we never took the time to meet online. We never took the time to do any of that. Like I, I was mostly me probably just not saying like, let's hop on a zoom call and finally meet in person. Always been messages like letters of pen pal. And I got her on to talk about Jack's film from 1939 man about town. So 10 over 10 years of friendship culminated in us finally meeting over zoom for a podcast about Jack's film career. And Within that same time, they were she was announcing a virtual Jack Benny convention because the pandemic had brought everybody to a low ebb. And this was something that she hadn't done a convention since the early aughts. And it was a physical convention, live and in person. And it was like and it, it, it just there was there was no repetition because it was just such such a big thing to build. And then she brings this up and she asks, what do you want to see at the convention um, on the Facebook page? And I responded with, I want somebody to talk about Jack's film career because it's something I'm not too uh, uh, versed on apart from the things that I know. And she is like, why don't you handle that? <laughs> so you know that like spotlight that pops up on a prisoner trying to break out of jail in a yeah. cartoon? It just <laughs> felt like that. And I felt like the fucking wolf going like, uh, and so... I started developing a Jack on Film panel, um, which has subsequently now become an actual book writing quest for me. Um, I called it You Can't Film Jack, because I thought that was funny if you just removed the shit at the end of it. Um, and, uh, and I started gathering stuff for the panel, and then uh, things took an even stranger turn because one of the people I wanted on the panel couldn't make it. So Laura said, why don't you get Leonard Malton on it? And I'm like, yeah, that'll be the day. And then next thing I know, she's like, I emailed Leonard Malton. I'm like, you did fucking what? <laughs> and uh, that, that beautiful man could not have been sweeter to be a part of this whole panel. But as the convention unfolded, I stayed for the entire thing. And I ended up kind of helping with dropping photos during the interviews when like, we have a photo of this specific person who was on the show at that point, this is where they were at that time. Um, like we talked with uh, Janine Roos and Ann Whitfield, um, who uh, were Phil Harris's daughters on the Phil Harris Alice Faye show and on Jack's program. And uh, Janine Roos was also obviously in It's a Wonderful Life. So we found It's a Wonderful Life photos. We found photos of her with Phil and Alice. And I started contributing to that. Um, and then eventually by the end of it, I just became like, I started having people ask, asking me about my opinion about Jack. And then with the, the convention that came the following year, I just inquired, are we doing this again? And she's like, oh, we can. And like, I, and then I started helping out even more in a producerial realm. I edited videos for people who didn't have necessarily software to do that. Um, and we got, like uh, even bigger guests that year we had dick cavett there um and so that kind of blossomed and then this year um i i actively asked if i could take a more active role as a producer on the show on the whole thing and so that's where it's where it's landed for me now i'm like helping laura and our co-producer and and badass and uh in, in action hope sears um uh, we're we're getting this year's convention 
figured out and scheduled and we just released the schedule and the press release uh two days ago so now we're we're in the process of finalizing all the panels and getting everything ready to rock and roll for february 17th when everything starts um so the it's it's been a strange journey i like jack falling into comedy i came into this on accident um it's it's my fandom with jack is accidental and consequently being this active a member in the convention is also an accident too, but it's the happiest accident I've ever had in my life. Hands down. It's really, it's really beautiful and synergetic that like, um, you know, you, you, the path that led you to Jack was Leonard Malton on, on the fun and fancy free. And then, you know, you become a part of this convention with Leonard Martin Malton. Like that's, that's <laughs> unbelievable. It, oh, it, the, 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 the through line is not lost on me at all. It was one of the most bizarre things I had ever happened that had ever happened in my life was getting to meet that man. And, and he's coming back for a third time. I've done. Uh, I did another um, panel with him the year before about um, Jack in animation, um, where we actually had one of the layout artists on the mouse that Jack built, which was the Looney Tune that had Jack and his cast in uh, as mice. Um, so it's it's like an offshoot of what they did with the Honey Mousers on Looney Tunes. Um, and so we actually got the layout artist who did a lot of the background stuff. And um, I met Keith Scott there, who is one of the coolest human beings on this planet he was um he's a voice artist he would be most known to american audiences i'd imagine for being the voice of bullwinkle in the 2000s rocky and bullwinkle movie which i still adore and he wrote a book on voice acting in the golden age of animation because mel blank was one of the few people to get actual credit and so he tracked down everything Thing that could possibly be tracked down about voice artists who never got credit and telling their stories and how it connects to the studio's history. And so like, I've gotten to meet like really fun people out of this as a result. And, uh, and, and also just connecting with the fellow Benny fans. Um, like right now I'm editing together a recreation for an, uh, an, uh, impressionist and entertainer named Brad Zinn. Um, and this is like one of his bucket list items is to do this kind of original, tour de force performance and i'm getting to help people out with that seeing their dreams come to the forefront that's a really cool idea and feeling to have and to think that it comes out of this love for a single comedian is probably the most baffling thing about the entire thing is that it's it's incredible how much connection that comedian has to people in and out of uh different parts of my life or in other people's lives like you you seem to hear a spark when you hear that name. Even if you don't, people don't know him. Once they listen to him, they get it. But there are people you wouldn't expect to be Jack Benny fans. Like our guest that has already been announced is Neil Gaiman. Like one of our big guests this year is Neil Gaiman. I had zero clue because my my Gaiman knowledge extended to the Sandman run um, that he did that I was able to read. And that was about it because I'm not a big fiction reader. But Hope had read more about it and she dove in and she interviewed him and she fucking crushed it. It's an amazing interview that I'm so excited. People are going to get to see because you're going to find a Jack Benny fan that you didn't realize might've like didn't realize was there. It's kind of remarkable, like, and not not and, just that, but like you you know you, it uh, it opens up a window um, for Gaiman fans to to discover Jack Benny. Like it, it works both ways. 
Yes, that's the synergy on it is actually really remarkable. Um, and there's so many things about Jack's career that don't even necessarily pertain to Jack, like people that he had as constant regulars on his show. Like you can extend off to a George Burns discussion, which we're going to do this year about George Burns and his life. Um, Ronald Coleman, who was this renowned actor for MGM and a couple other studios, um, he there's a there's a through line that starts in 1945 where it's established that um he yes indeed they are neighbors even though obviously in real life they were not but like jack is ronald coleman's next door neighbor and just the amount of um awkward curb your enthusiasm seinfeld level uh cringe moments that happen with jack just popping into dinner at their house one night becomes a through line of ronald coleman can't stand his next door neighbor jack benny you know you can go into a ronald coleman talk just based off of that and learn more about ronald coleman uh phil harris is somebody that everybody in america knows because of disney he would not have been at disney if it were not for this program and having been on it for close to the all of the 20-year run of the of the radio program dennis day is the voice of johnny appleseed for disney um so there's a lot of like there's a lot of offshoots you can go it's like an mcu in this in the stupidest possible way like it it literally you can just go off and find an adventure on another person involved in this in this wide world and it extends into old-time radio golden age hollywood um and the amount of jack stuff that still exists today in terms of reference like I'm sure listeners here are comic book fans or Marvel fans as much as we are. Uh, Deadpool 2 has an amazing Jack Benny reference that involves, uh, uh, for people who may not remember Deadpool 2 because you you didn't go to it the way you did to the first one, Um, (laughs) the box office shows that. Um, There's a scene where Deadpool is sneaking into Blind Al's house to grab cocaine from underneath the floorboard, and she's listening to the most famous Jack Benny bit of all time, which is your money or your life. And it would be one thing if that's just in the background, but then Deadpool gets the cocaine and then he just creeps up behind blind Al, and it's timed to the routine. And the routine for people who don't know it is uh, a burglar sticks up Jack and says, your money or your life. There's a pause. And then the burglar goes, your money or your life. And then Jack just yells out, I'm thinking it over. And Deadpool shouts that in Blind Al's ear, and she just whips out her gun and goes, motherfucker. (laughs) So, like, that stuff, like, you're not expecting that to pop up in a Marvel movie, let alone something that's going to be a part of the MCU retroactively. So I'm, I'm amazed how much Jack Benny is still out there. I thought this was dead. I'm so happy to be wrong, you know? Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, uh, did I see uh, in the list of guests um, that uh, Carol Burnett also um, is among the uh, contributors this year? We pre-recorded an interview with her um, that will be that will be playing, I believe, on Sunday at the convention or on Friday. I think we have to we have to redetermine that, but um, but yeah, she she took the time to talk a little bit about Jack, um, and uh, the the other guests we have coming to the forefront keith scott's coming back we're going to do a panel on mel blank together he and i um we've got a lot of benny podcasters um around this year so there's actually one that um is probably one of the most 
uh, known in the internet sphere right now is This Day in Jack Benny, hosted by John Henderson, where he plays the Jack Benny episode that correlates with the day, calendar day that he's recording it on or releasing it on. Um, there's Buck Benny OTR, who's been there since really the dawn of podcasting, um, and he does intros at the beginning of his episodes and then replays Jack Benny episodes. Um, we've also got um, uh, actors who worked with Jack um, in some capacity, like um, or or connected in some form or fashion, like Cynthia Pepper. We have Lucille Ball's daughter Lucy Arnaz talking about her mother's friendship with Jack, um, and that's a wonderful interview that I was fortunate enough to sit in on. Um, and, uh, th- there's additional people that will be kind of popping in and out as surprises. Uh, there is a, there is a live Ballyhoo happening at the convention and I'm not revealing who the guest is, uh, at least not th- at this time, but he is an active part of one of the most famous parts of Jack's radio career. And it has to do with the violin. Um, so that's a tease. If people know what I'm talking about, they'll, they'll get it right away. Um, but there's also and we've reached out to other people and I uh, like there's one that I hope we eventually get on this convention eventually, which is Barry Gordon, because we've we talked about him on a thousand clowns um, uh, and he actually worked with Jack a couple times um, in one of the most hilarious television sketches that Jack did where Jack's casting his life story and there's a kid that he thinks will be perfect and then his agent comes in and it's another kid and then he realizes that the agent would be a better uh, person to play the role of Jack than the kid actor Um, and Barry's played both parts he's played the uh, the actor and then he's also played the agent and in one of those episodes the, the reverse of the reverse character was played by Harry Shearer um, who's another Simpson, uh, Simpsons connection to um, to old time radio is that Harry Shearer has gone on to be the voice of Mr. Burns. And um, so like th- there's there's guests that we would love to get on. Like uh, I, I just think that it's remarkable how many people are still alive that worked with Jack um, and or just made it their life's career to to discuss Jack. Um, Kathy Fuller Seeley is one of the best historians i know she knows everything about jack's radio career everything and she's been an immense help with researching on my book and she's she's going to be on a couple different panels she uh connected with a scrapbooker named barbara thanell who actually worked uh at cbs at the time that jack was on television but even before that was a huge jack benny fan and collected everything related to Jack in the press, uh, in magazines, uh, advertisements, everything. Like, her scrapbooks are thick. And she interviewed her um, for over two hours, I think it was, about um, about her career as a Jack Benny historian on accident. Um, because you don't think when you're scrapbooking this that it's going to mean anything to history, and then you realize, holy shit, like, an entire entertainer's career is contained inside your scrapbooks ma'am <laughs> so yeah. like that's that's the lineup that we have coming to the forefront for this year's convention and it's and it's remarkable that everybody has dedicated their time and their energy um like leonard malton's panel this year is actually 
it's going to be about how he met members of Jack's cast while they were still alive and his experience, you know, writing it. Cause every people might not know this. He wrote a book called the, uh, the great American broadcast, which is about old time radio. It's a, it's a condensed history of old time radio. And he interviewed pretty much anybody that was still around at that point, uh, including George Balzer, who was one of Jack's key writers for years, uh, he got to meet Mel Blanc, Phil Harris. So there's a stories there that we want to hear from somebody who's had that experience talking to them. Like, it's it sucks that not everybody's still alive, but the people who met them carry on those stories like 99% to the letter. And so that that's kind of an amazing thing is that it is a... Uh, a touchstone to history like you can you can almost touch it like you know like like you're just you can almost reach through the screen um and that's that's kind of the most beautiful part of this is that there are people who still care about this medium and this comedian and you don't get any bigger joy than watching somebody's eyes light up when they remember something about jack or the radio show or his films or his television show that just make you feel like a kid again. Like it's, it's this eternal, like positive vibe that I don't see in any other fandom. I've never not want star Wars. It doesn't really exist. MCU doesn't (laughs) exist. There is, there are disagreements about Jack, but they are, but, but then like anytime you dip your face into a frown, it just starts immediately going back up to a smile like that. That That is that is something that d- doesn't exist in fandoms today. I'm like, frankly, shocked that we can't find that that um, that camaraderie or that like genuine affection. Um, and it, and the fact that it's not that far removed from our recent history, like we're yeah. still we're still in the grasp of it, that we can still appreciate it. And hopefully this is the beginning of it having its own life. After I'm gone. <laughs> I would hope so. Well, at this time, Zach, you want to go through the jauntlet? These are my questions I like to ask every guest. <sighs> it was inevitable. And I, <laughs> and, uh, uh, I did warn you, um, I am going to throw some in the one-hit wonders just to shake you off your game. But, of course. Uh, but here we go. The, the uh, one-hit wonder is number one, Billy Joel or Elton John? Elton John. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I uh I've re-listened to him a lot lately and I think that came with Rocket Man um coming out and me going like well this is better than that other biopic they made a year a year or two ago. Um but uh but yeah no Billy uh Billy Joel's cool but like Elton John just like there's some kind of like to me there's just something flourishy about it. I love I love a theatrical uh engagement in it. And that's what Elton John always feels to me even when I'm listening to him. I'm not always thinking about just the music i'm thinking about like what is he doing on stage does he have feathers on right now is he just in a nice really spangly sparkly suit it doesn't matter like i can imagine there are certain artists where you can imagine what they're doing on stage vividly and elton john is one of them billy joel has stage elements but it's not the same thing as elton john so yeah i i pick elton he he makes my brain spark a lot fantastic uh debbie harry or joan jett joan jett yeah i can't tell you how many times i have a bad reputation on a loop um, and it's not because of freaks and geeks even though that show's great um i actually i actually found a way i have this i have this movie in my head of 
the making of The Other Side of the Wind, which was Orson Welles' last movie that he never got to finish. And it would basically be like a buddy movie with him and John Huston. And I would want the movie to end with that song. Movie better. <laughs> so, I like so it. I, I love that idea of just like ending this movie about two Golden Age heroes with Joe Jett. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, as a film guy, have you ever seen Light of Day? No, I have not. Okay, so Light of Day is Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox as brother and sister in a, in a rock band. What? And um, yes, yes, yes. It's uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Definitely check it out. Um, it's uh, it's really incredible. <laughs> Is it like do the Shout Factory have this or something? Shoot, I don't know. Now. That's a good question. But yeah, light light of day. Um, it's um, it, it was a cable staple uh, growing up, and uh, it's like Michael J. Fox being serious. Michael McKeon is in it. He uh, is also in the band. They're called the Bar Breakers. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's tremendous. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to check this out now. <laughs> um, next one, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner? Uh, Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Um, I, 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 enjoy, I, I enjoy her music. I, I, Tina Turner never, it wasn't playing on a constant loop the way Aretha Franklin was. So like that's, that, and that's more of a childhood thing. You know, okay. there's, like, there's artists that your parents listen to, and Aretha was always on the radio. So I yeah. just heard more of her when, from the stations my parents played. So yeah, I would go with Aretha, hands down. All right, respect. Uh, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Oh, Pearl Jam. Um, yeah. I like Nirvana. I do. Uh, Pearl Jam, though, I have a... Pearl Jam will always be close to my heart because of the time that my dad took me to the advanced screening of Big Fish. Um, the, oh, like the man. preview screening. And Man of the Hour is one of my favorite songs they've ever done. And it makes me cry every time I think of it because I, I, I think about it and I'm going like, my dad's going to die one day. Fuck. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm like, no. Um, but it's also this beautiful way to end the movie. And I think Vetter's voice is really good. He's the sole reason that I would probably watch the Into the Wild movie is because of what he does for the, for the music of the film. Because I read the book and I have zero desire to watch the movie because I'm like, there's no way this book is going to be done justice in this movie. Um, but I w- if I watch it eventually, it will be because Eddie Vedder's music does get to me. And it has, and my uncle loves him, too. So that's one of those things we first bonded over. So Yeah. The, you, you mentioned Big Fish. That is um, my one um, thing that I hold in the back of my head on why I will never give up on Tim Burton. Is mm-hmm. I'm praying for another, another film like that or Ed Wood from him. Um, yep. Because the the less that he Burtons, um, the better I think he is as a uh, filmmaker. But I think Big Eyes came pretty close. Big Eyes is a really yeah. interesting movie yeah. from him that nobody's expecting. It's not the same, but but it's still a Karaszewski Alexander script, and it still has a vibrant weird element to it with all the big, with the big eye paintings. And I think Christoph Waltz is actually amazing in that trial sequence where he's just freaking the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, that, like I, I, that, that's my favorite kind of Burton as much as yeah. uh, weird Burton uh, is also, you know, a fun time. Uh, Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks? Stevie Nicks. Um, yeah. You got to love somebody who's a witch. You, yeah. you got to love a witch. Um, <laughs> Is it, uh, it's, I think it was like it's it's one of those things where uh, I'm not as versed in music, and so Stevie Nicks just kind of like sticks out because of Fleetwood Mac, and there was so much stuff playing on the radio that I'm just like, this is this just this is unique. This feels unique to me. It's almost like you take the power of 
the music revolution you have in the 60s and you just add a little bit more dash of psychedelicness or something like that or something strange something weird is going on yeah uh, and and i like i like being put off my guard when i listen to stevie nicks so i would say her hands down brilliant answer uh the big one beatles or the stones Either way, I'm fucked. Um, <laughs> uh, the Beatles. But I have like this, I really love the Beatles in uh, fifth grade. I, re- I, I absorbed them. Uh, and the Stones came to me in high school. And I think the Beatles still stick out more than the Stones because there is something about the evolution of the Beatles that will always fascinate me, where they started and where they ended up by the end. And even if you want to go into the solo careers of, of each individual band member, like their, their, their sound is, is so unique that they were able to transplant it into different motifs. Um, I love kind of like listening to the production difference between I Want to Hold Your Hand and something like Yellow Submarine where it's, it's, it's a complete shift in the norm. And these guys were out there going like, well, yeah, it's great to do a rock and roll sound, but what if we like slowed everything down and just really like threw in production value? Like Sgt. Pepper's is a great album because it's just, it's again, I like visualizing what's happening. I can't visualize I Want to Hold Your Hand without thinking of a very specific image, which is A Hard Day's Night. Right. Um, uh, or more recently, Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it's a dark joke, I guess, but um, but yellow uh, Sergeant Pepper's. I feel like there's a story being told, and it and I am not limited to the Beatles' Yellow Submarine cartoon as my go-to for it. I, my mind can go anywhere. It's why I like Across the Universe too. Is just like I love that somebody took what they thought a Beatles album looked like and made it into a movie. And like the like because the Mr. Kite sequence in that film is incredible. But that stuff comes from your imagination. I don't get that with the Stones. And I like using my imagination in any instance of the day. The, the Stones make me want to go marching in the street. Like, yeah. The Beatles make me want to relax. And ultimately, relaxation will always kind of trump any vitriol that I'd want to feel in my life. Sure, sure. You you mentioned across the universe. You know, I said uh, David Lynch and Star Wars. Well, what do we got to do to get Julie Taymor a Marvel film? <laughs> like, come on. Can she take up Guardians of the Galaxy since James is leaving? Something. Give her something. I, you know, like, I I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know what? Actually, I'd like to see Julie Taymor do a Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, because that'd be because fantastic. I, I liked Multiverse of Madness, but everybody thought, well, Sam Raimi's doing Multiverse of Madness, so this thing's going to be messed up. And it ended up being about what I expected them to do within the context of this is a Marvel movie. I want Marvel to take a risk and be like, Julie Taymor, I want, here's Dr. Stephen Strange. Go fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you know that there would be theatrical kind of like an a, a, like a, a even grander psychedelic aesthetic. She would create a theatricality about it. And I feel like the the very concept of of any Marvel property is something is, is something that is overtly theatrical and into a sense melodramatic for positive reasons. I want to see what she does with the visual spectrum, especially after Across the Universe. Because that movie kind of twists and turns with its visual acumen. Let's see what she does with Doctor Strange or even Guardians of the Galaxy, because it's a very it's got a quirky enough aesthetic. You can kind of do stuff in space with that. I'd love to see what she would do as a space opera. Um, So that's that's where I would go with that. Hands down. 
uh, I, I mean, it's it seems like it's it's like a gift to Marvel. Like we just gave Marvel a gift, doesn't it? They they don't they don't accept my gifts though. They don't they don't. <laughs> They don't accept my gifts, Nate. I've tried. I'm like, look, dude, get a Kingpin solo movie directed by Martin Scorsese. Make peace with him. Yeah. And do it that way. <laughs> like, that's, um, you that's know, what you want. Uh, another gift to Marvel, my, my Fox action film, actually, I've tried to retrofit as a uh, Marvel film as well. Um, whereas uh, the uh, henchman works for AIM. Let me do it. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Or, you know, actually, here's a Marvel film that they should do that they'll probably never do because it might be too... Um, experimental, but do you remember Alex Ross's Marvels? Yes, where it's all through the perspective of a photographer. That's my favorite Marvel story ever. I I have this notion in my head that that is if I were if I got the chance to make a Marvel movie, that's what I would want to do. I'm saying let me make a one shot, an entire epic one shot, and allow me to use the characters that are normally in your IP. I won't interfere with the continuity. I won't fuck up anything. Because the story doesn't allow you to fuck up the continuity. It's literally intrinsic for him to not interfere. And it's one of the best stories ever because it is like, I want the viewpoint of the person that doesn't fly around in the suit. Like, this is insane. There are people flying around in armor suits and there's there's some frozen dude from the 40s in there. This is nuts. Like, somebody explain this to me and then go into that. And now that the X-Men are there, like, I always envisioned you kind of fuck around with the ending and have some kind of way to end it with the revelation of the X-Men Of the mutants, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's my favorite thing about the uh, Ms. Marvel series is just the the world where all of the superhero stuff's going on and you're a kid in school going to, like, Avengers Con and stuff like that. Like, that's amazing to me. (laughs) Amazing to me. That's so weird if you were, like, because imagine that in the real world. Like, this is not to denigrate the the wonderful service that... uh, the, the public service that people do, but it's just like, what if we went to Firefighter Con? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, they exist, ask, man. Yeah, oh, they, they exist. <laughs> there's there's like fans like in the crowds going like, can you talk about the one time that you shot the fire happening on 35th Street? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, like, that's like the, that's the equivalent for me of an Avenger Con. But yeah. I guess, I guess it's easier in this world of the, because I still haven't seen Miss Marvel, but I guess it also means that they have actually consequently made comic books of the Avengers stories. Yes. Inside yes. The, yeah. I figured, yeah. Well, uh, that's and, and not just comic books, but um, one of the most exciting things to me um, uh, coming in uh, a month to Ant-Man and Wasp uh, in Quantum Mania is um, Scott Lang's a podcaster now. Um, <laughs> so, so fucking great. <laughs> Everybody has a podcast, including Scott Lang. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> uh, the 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 last of the originals, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven. Bohemian Rhapsody. It's, in spite it, of the in spite of the joke that I made about that biopic, I don't enjoy. Because um, <laughs> I, I I didn't grow up a Zeppelin fan. I got into Zeppelin later, and Stairway to Heaven is not my favorite Zeppelin song. No, it's, Bohemian it's, Bohemian Rhapsody is just. It's a it's an experience. You can't. I don't. To my mind, there's no there's no contest. I get it. Stairway to Heaven has a following, but Bohemian Rhapsody is such an amazing song that you can get a sequence out of Wayne's World involving the the virtual entirety of that song. It's so multipurposeful, um, and it's I I think that it's the it's a tribute to Mercury and 
and that band that they found a way to do a rock song that at first doesn't sound like a rock song. And then it moves through, it brings, it, it lifts rock up to the, to the pedigree it deserves, which is, this isn't just about kids dancing and twisting and, and oh no, Elvis is doing some kind of sexy dance. Oh no, no, this is an art form. This has like heavy metal is classical music with 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 electric guitars and drums. Like that's what I equate that to. And so I feel like Bohemian Rhapsody achieves that in a way that Stairway to Heaven doesn't do the same thing for me. I think they both have those immense epic qualities, but Bohemian Rhapsody has like so many things going on. Yeah. And similar to the imagination thing, that story is very literal, but I can imagine different instances of how the events take place and what the visuals look like. It can change from time to time. You know, it's like, I always thought like there's a, there's an Upton Sinclair novel called the jungle, which is about the meatpacking industry. I always thought if you did a jungle movie, essentially, and not what fast food nation ended up becoming under Richard Linkletter. If you did the jungle, I would end it with Bohemian Rhapsody. Like that Hmm. would be the way you end it about this kind of strange journey of 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 coming to another place and being in a position of like under corporate greed like it's just it almost feels like it's per- the tragedy of that song interlocks with the the reality that that story is expounding upon that's that's just how i've always felt about it i love it i love it um so these are uh, three zach specific um film related one hit wonders that i came up with um okay. and uh let's let's test these out uh the first one scorsese or spielberg Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love Spielberg. I, I adore the man. I saw the Fablemans in theaters, which I don't think everybody in the audience is going to say they did. Because um, <laughs> I saw the box office returns. I'm like, y'all are fucking go. You claim to love the guy and all the fun adventures he gave you with that doctor. And yet you won't go to his home movies. I don't understand. Um, but Scorsese, Scorsese hit me in a way. It comes in tandem with two different things. Number one. My mom took me to the, the aviator um, and my mom and I don't, we've had our struggles, but we, we, we're closer now. But one of, but I love when my mom would take me to movies because it was, it was, she, somehow we always went to something stranger than my dad took me to. And the aviator was one of them. And I walked out of the aviator at the age of 13 going like, what did I just watch? And I didn't feel that out of Spielberg when I was younger. I felt like this is par for the course. Even even Schindler's List, I I had that feeling of this is par for the course. Over time, I've realized how amazing Schindler's List is in comparison to the rest of his filmography, um, because that the gaze isn't there as some people claim. It's a very different movie than anything else he ever made. Yeah. Um, uh, but Scorsese just something clicked in my brain, and then my dad showed me Goodfellas, and then I was like, what? What is this? What is so appealing about this? And I think it's the same thing about Jack. Is I'm watching very terrible people. And just marveling at like the decisions they make, and why would you choose this? Why, Henry? Why would you? Why? Why would you keep doing drugs even though Polly told you not to? Like, that, like choices like that. And Scorsese deals with very flawed men, and I think that that ex- that 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 has a remarkable stretch to the point where even Hugo is about a flawed man, and it's George Milliers. And I don't get the same excitement out of a Spielberg movie that I do with a Scorsese film. I just don't. I anticipate that man's movies the way people anticipate the next Spielberg sci-fi adventure. 
that's that's been my comfort food which is so strange to say about movies that literally have the phrase go fuck your mother happening every five yeah, seconds yeah. um but also like his views on religion and like the way he he's not just a gangster guy last temptation of christ is a fucking amazing film shutter island i have grown to love that film over time uh after hours is one of the most undersung movies of the 80s that has ever existed uh and uh raging bull is not my favorite but i love that that I love the juxtaposition of that and Iraqi existing all within the same like five year period. Uh, he just challenges my mind, and he taught me a lot about film history and film restoration. And so I can I can always point to him as like this is the guy, this is my guy. Yeah, good answer, yeah. good answer. Uh, here's one: uh, Keaton or Chaplin? Chaplin, um, yeah. Which I think is a standard answer for a lot of people. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with The Great Dictator as a film. I like his silent stuff. And, uh, if, but in fact, if I were like thinking about a Keaton sort of trumps Chaplin in a lot of ways because of the insanity of his stunts. Um, but Chaplin always gets to me because of The Great Dictator and the, uh, the, the amazing power that that man held when it came to speech because he held off for so long. And when he finally said something, he said something. Um, but also, if you look back prior to it, the construction of things like modern times and city lights, they just they, they hit the funny button that Keaton does. And then they transcend it and make it a story for all languages. And I think that that's something that Keaton has, but not in the same capacity as Chaplin. So I'd pick Chaplin, hands down. Nice. Very nice. Uh, and the, the last one, and I, I, I'm interested in um, your answer on this one. Uh, Hitchcock or Kubrick? Hitchcock. <laughs> I, I assume. Um, I'm going to be booed off of your podcast, and it hasn't even aired yet. Uh, I am not a Kubrick acolyte. <laughs> I and I think a lot of that has to do with similar reasons why people can't understand Hitchcock acolytes, which is the praise heaped upon each of them is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but Hitchcock got to me before Kubrick. And I think that that's the key element is like what what got to me first? The birds was so revelatory. It terrified me. Hitchcock terrifies me in a way that Kubrick could never have done with The Shining. It, the, the Shining is a brilliant thriller and horror film for what it's doing, and it does tap into anxieties of isolation. Hitchcock tapped into a broad fear of a thing I see on the street. Uh, Hitchcock has made me afraid to go into my own fucking shower. Hitchcock has made it... has, has made... It possible for me to work out the window and wonder what's going on in the other uh, in the other house or apartment next to me like it's he is so powerful with his ideas without lifting a finger like the amount of pre-production that he does to the point where that film comes out the way it does it's all meticulous pre-planning and it's almost like he prepared this witch's brew in advance he already knew what it was gonna do and and also watching his career ebb and flow between spy thriller and uh mysterious drama and then comedy on occasion like i feel like the variety that he has possibly intertwined with how many films he got to do and watching him evolve from silent film to sound is something that 
I admire looking at eternally through all time. It's why I started podcasting on my own with Hitchcock because he was a director that just continued to fascinate me and has never gone away. I love Psycho so much. I watch that movie and I will forget the twist because I allow my brain to do it. Kubrick, I feel like I have to be in the mood for Kubrick. I cannot watch Clockwork Orange on a willy-nilly. I can't do that. But I can put on Rear Window any time of the day. But with Kubrick, I will say this. I enjoy the amount of thought that Kubrick puts into my head. That is something that Hitchcock doesn't always do. He does it a lot, but not all the time. Each Kubrick film puts thought into my head. It's just for the sake of what I cling to, it's Hitchcock. Kubrick I have distance from. Kind of like Hitchcock, uh, kind of like Kubrick has with his subjects. He has a distance from them, and they're usually pretty cold. Um, uh, but, um, but Dr. Strangelove is like the one like, uh, thing that could, bre- could have made or break it for me is because Dr. Strangelove is one of the funniest fucking movies that's ever been made. Yeah. And I will never not enjoy the final line of Dr. Strangelove getting out of the fucking chair and going, I can walk. It's a mirror. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it's, seeing that and going like, what the fuck? <laughs> I knew the bomb was dropping. I knew it was going to happen. I'm still surprised it happened. <laughs> oh, it's so great. It's so great. Yeah. Uh, the next section is the top 10 countdown. As, I, as I've as i told you, uh, John can be whatever you want. It can be anything. Um, uh, movie, music, film, or uh, food, feeling, mood. Uh, first one, what was your first, John? What was the first thing you were obsessed with when you were younger? Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars, yeah. It's, I, I didn't expect that movie at six. I didn't know what was ahead of me. My dad just told me, in order to watch your Looney Tunes tape, you've got to watch this first. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched it, and I never really stopped. I still have all of them. I still haven't picked up The Rise of Skywalker yet. Sorry. But, uh, but I, I still love Star Wars to this day. That is a, but that was, I'm not obsessed with it the way I used to be. But that was my first real, like, the brain sparked. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's, like, so much about this story that I don't still understand. Like, what really is the Force? And yeah. why, is, why is it a puppet instead of an uh, animated cartoon character? And why, <laughs> why, why, why does Luke kiss his sister that we find out is his sister eventually? These are so many questions. Uh, and I, and it, it, it was really one of the first things to really spark the imagination because it is so inventive. My favorite Star Wars film is still A New Hope no matter how good any of the other ones have been because I'm like no that's that's the moment where my my mind clicked <laughs> like so beautiful uh number 2 what's your current john what are you into right now oh uh my current john is jack benny's film career um i'm eternally fascinated by a film career that failed <laughs> and uh that's very much the story of jack's film career and learning about it has been revelatory to understanding the film industry how it worked then and how it works now that's something that i am eternally searching for is like how do you connect the dots to today and understand all the mistakes that can be avoided if you just look back into a history book and so jack's film career actually tells you a lot it also tells you about what what we don't have anymore which is a star system we don't have a star system anymore, but it tells you a lot about that. It tells you about how comedy works in film, and it tells you so much about 
the trends that comedy goes through. Uh, and like we're currently in a trend right now where comedy doesn't really exist on its own. And no, so it's I, a comedy drought. <laughs> exactly. And so I'm curious about like, well, how do we go in those ebbs and flows and what, what's that nexus point? But Jack's film career honestly provides a lot of answers for people that may never realize, you know, th- there's so much stuff in the thirties and forties that we find funny, but if you really look at it hard and the Marx brothers are actually a great, um, uh, uh, measurement of this as well. At a certain point, comedy becomes a formula in cinema, and then suddenly all the subgenres like screwball or slapstick get get shoved into each other. And Jack fell victim to that. Um, he had one one interruption that proved the 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 exception, which is to be or not to be, by Ernst Lubitsch. But then everything else that comes after it is very much a formula, and it asks Jack to do things he's not good at, like slapstick. Um, and you also, I also learn more about how you film comedy. And I learned something in that process, which is I wish that Kevin Smith would stop making fun of his camera work. Camera work in comedy is tough as sin. But do you know what's great about filmed comedy? When you're not using close-ups and when right. you're using two shots and reactive comedy. Jack worked best in reactive comedy. Kevin Smith made a whole first movie about reactive comedy, and it's brilliant because that is how you would film that interaction for it to be funny. And then if you want to, if you want to lift up the camera, you can. But that, that to me is genius. It's allowed me to appreciate comedy films from the Marx Brothers on down to the Zucker Brothers that I never really thought about. And so that's why it's my f- current John is because – like the Jack Benny subject, it just spirals into several different directions that are just so remarkable. Um, and I just got really excited over it. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. Uh, number three, what was your first concert? What was the first live show you saw? Oh, um, yes, I did think of this, but I want to ask as, as, a, as a, a follow-up question. Does it yeah. have to, does it, because uh, for recent ones, does it have to be a music concert or could it have been like a stand-up? No, um, that works. Concert. Yeah, I'll take okay. that. Okay, my first stand-up concert experience was seeing Tim Conway and Harvey Corman live. Really? Uh, at the at the Buell Theater here in Colorado. And the reason I went was because I had gotten into Mel Brooks, and Harvey Corman was hilarious as uh, as uh, Hedley Lamar. And then I learned more about the Carol Burnett show as a result. But yeah, that was my first one. And it was fun because they did the dentist sketch from the Carol Burnett show. Uh, they had somebody kind of being a Carol fill-in for, for their show. But it was mainly the stuff they did together on the Burnett show and beyond. Um, that was my first one. But I will throw out that my first music concert was Queensryche, uh, Alice Cooper, and Heaven and Hell. Wow. Um, we went to go see Alice Cooper, but we, had to, we sat through Queensryche, and I started learning more about Queensryche. But we had to leave after Heaven and Hell started because I had school the next day. So, um, But we went there for Alice because my dad got me into Alice Cooper. And that stage show was nuts because it was 2007 and um, Giuliani and Clinton were running for president at that point. And they had he played elected. And he had two people come out, one with a Hillary hat on and one with a Rudy hat on. And then they were fighting and bickering and slapping each other. And then they start dry humping each other on the stage. <laughs> it was one of the most— Fantastic. Eclectic experiences ever, yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, what uh, number four? What was your last concert? What was the last live show you went to? 
last live show that I went to was um uh well stand up wise or just theatric wise it was a probably it was a Kevin Smith Q&A that was out here in Colorado but um uh but concert wise um it was um Raw Mayhem Fest out here in Colorado which is kind of like a big you know big old hard metal fest uh and it was Five Finger Death Punch Lamb of God Rob Zombie and then Corn and I stayed for Rob Zombie and then I left because I'm not a corn fan. Sorry. Um, you didn't have to go to school this time. <laughs> no, no, I was in college at this point. So I was okay, like, okay. I can stay up as long as I want. Dragula. Um, mm-hmm. And I think actually at that point he was putting out uh, Lords of Salem. So he actually showed a trailer for Lords of Salem in there. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Um, but it, I, that was awesome watching Rob Zombie do the stage show and, and just having fun with that something I'd only heard in albums was suddenly right in front of me. And I, I had my imagination before, but to watch the production value of Rob Zombie is fucking remarkable. It's why I like Alice Cooper too. I love theatrics. I love that, that attention to detail and that man, you can hate on his movies all you want. I don't care. I just won't talk to you. But, um, uh, but that man knows how to make something look pretty. And that man makes horror look very pretty. Like, and his, there's universal monster love. There's public domain monster love in that. It's just, it was remarkable. Um, and Five Finger Death Punch was going to be a new discovery for me. Like, I don't listen to them frequently, but I remember hearing them and going like, man, they're going to be big. And then they ended up being pretty big. And I didn't get Lamb of God. I was like, I don't get this. Like, this <laughs> I could barely hear anything they were doing. Like, this, this wasn't fun for me. But I get it. People love Lamb of God and more power to them. Yeah, right on, right on. Uh, number five, what was your favorite concert, favorite live show? Bruce Springsteen, 2009. Wow. Where at? Colorado? Yeah, Pepsi Center, when it was still the Pepsi Center. It was the Working on a Dream Tour. Uh, my dad loves Springsteen. He got me into Springsteen real heavy. Um, and uh, at the time, he had just gotten, a, I believe, it's some kind of nomination for The Wrestler, for the song The Wrestler, which is one of my favorite songs of his uh, within the recent years. Um, and I went to the concert and he was doing a lot of working on a dream stuff. And I thought like, well, this is all great, but he's not going to do the song I want him to do. And then sure enough, the whole E street band left and he just gets out on a stool, has an acoustic guitar. And then I start hearing the wrestler theme and I'm like, Oh fuck. Oh, <laughs> doing it? Um, and then actually they, uh, the encore was glory days and the whole E street band was still alive and they were there. So Clarence Clemens was there, Steve Van Zandt was there, and this was Clarence Clemens before he passed away. But I had I had, had Clarence Clemens as a as a specter all my life because of Bill and Ted. So yeah. you know, it, was, it was really cool to see one of the one of the lord, time lords in there suddenly just just jamming out with Bruce. So yeah, that's my favorite one. That was my favorite one, hands down. Very awesome. Light of Day is a Bruce Springsteen song, um, so uh, they also perform that in the movie. I'm just uh, going to make you watch this Joan Jett film uh, oh, yes, one, way or, <laughs> one way or another. Do uh, they never... play any Bronco Billy in there? <laughs> the, which is the most obscure thing I could bring out of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Bron- anybody know about Bronco Billy? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, number six, who have you never seen live that you wish you would have? They can be living or dead. John Denver. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I I learned about him first through two things. Oh God, uh, with George Burns, and the Muppets John Denver Christmas album. <laughs> um, but I started listening to him a lot in my adult years, 
And I really would have loved to be there on a mellow night at Red Rocks. Yeah. Uh, and just really listen to the poetry in his songs and embrace the country aspects of it. Country music's not my favorite genre in the world, but when it's done right, it's done right. And he could do Grandma's Feather Bed is such a fun fucking number. Um, but also Sunshine, Sunshine on My Shoulders has been very inspirational for me in writing a script that I have long delayed since I was a kid um, about uh, Jack Benny and his violin career. And that song has been really good in helping me visualize a certain element of that story. Um, just because of it's one of the re, it's one of the remastered versions. It's not the original one. It's the one where it has um, a string a string quartet or some kind of string symphony kind of underlaid in the background, and it's just kind of popped my brain open in so many different ways. And I love I love watching a calm thing. Like nothing, not everything has to be you know like scum of the earth. Like, so I like a mellowness. And John Denver would just be the most excellent evening out for me. And I, I, that's something that, that it sucks every time I think about how he died um, because yeah. of how, how close that opportunity might have been. Um, but yeah, he, he's the guy, hands down. And I would have been able to take my mom to that concert because she loves John Denver. She loves John Denver so much. So yeah, that would be my guy. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, number seven, uh, name an unappreciated John, something you wish uh, more people paid attention to. Oh. Um, an underappreciated. Because I've been thinking about this all day. Um, and I think, like, my, my honest answer is something that we touched on a little bit with Scorsese, which is. I wish people would watch the films of his that have nothing to do with a gangster or a gangster type. Uh, so Gangs of New York is out. Wolf of Wall Street is out. I wish people would watch him as a filmmaker and not as a crime director. I think he is one of the most underappreciated film artists of all time because no matter how much he does, what I'm about to tell you he does, people will still say he just makes gangster movies. Right. And I think that that's a subsection that could be uh, expended to a lot of directors. So I would like for Spielberg, I would say Spielberg films that have nothing to do with something that doesn't exist in the real world. Something either if it's a history film or it's something like the terminal, these are things you need to give a second glance to uh, Francis Ford Coppola movies that have nothing to do with three hours. Those are things that I would like to see people have more appreciation for. So just Dementia 13 and the conversation. Um, and I was going to say, does that, does that include uh, One from the Heart? or? Uh... I mean, it can. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, like Cotton Club is a good example. Like, I wish people would give Cotton Club a chance. It's not a bad movie at all. Um, I still have never seen The Outsiders. But I hear that that's a fun movie that people really like. It's really not great. Fun. Yeah, not fun. What's the, <laughs> a good movie. <laughs> right. Like, I knew what you, you know, meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, so, yeah, I would say the underrated aspects of directors. Um, I, I would say that that's the underappreciated genre, John for me is, like, looking at the B-sides or what they've always been, but what gets overshadowed by their legacy. George Lucas... Watch his weird shit. Watch THX 1138 and American Graffiti because those are both very weird. One is a weird sci-fi movie and the other one is a seemingly stable comedy. <laughs> you know, like watch those weird things. I would encourage that to the audience. 
Great answer. Great answer. Uh, number eight, favorite album. Favorite album. Oof. Can I give you two answers and I'll be quick Absolutely. about Absolutely. Okay. Um, my favorite uh, my favorite album, just point blank, um, is Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper. Um, with uh, Born in the USA in second place by Bruce Springsteen. And probably Hellbilly Deluxe in third place with Rob Zombie. Um, favorite soundtrack, though, is from my favorite movie of all time, Jackie Brown. No, oh, very the, good answer. One of the very best soundtracks that Quentin ever had for a movie. Because you get, you get a mix of everything that the guy loves. You, get, you start off with The Cross of 110th Street by Bobby Womack, and then you're thrown into Strawberry Letter 23. Then you suddenly have a Johnny Cash song in the middle of the, of the whole proceedings. And then you have uh, The Lion and the Cucumber. Which, like, there's, there's a sound about this film that conjures up this film, but it's also just like, here's a mixtape of the 70s that you never yeah. knew existed. Which is I, like, yeah. I, uh, it, one of my, you know, uh, obviously clearly, um, uh, uh, stretch goal dream is, uh, t- uh to, uh, have Quentin on the show and I've emailed his people a few times and they haven't emailed me back, but whatever, that's fine. Um, but, uh, but I b- primarily want to talk to him about his career in crafting soundtracks because mm-hmm. like, um, because not only is he a brilliant director, but he's incredible, um, at song choice. Like, yeah. Just, you know how you see the credit Randall poster on a lot of music music supervisory credits? Like I think even like on Clerks Two, he's the music super like the the quote unquote music supervisor because there's obviously songs in that that come from one person and one person only. Right. Um, but um, but like that that's a that's a job that I wish he would also get credit for in his films, as if though he needed more credits on his films, Quentin. But like that music supervisor would be hands down a wonderful option. And I and the second place soundtrack for me would be Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Not even a question. The Cohen brothers are heavy in my family. We love them. We because of Oh Brother Where Art Thou and that soundtrack was incessant in the car on a trip to Costco. Like that was a, that was a constant. I know Soggy Bottom Boys better than most people know their own mom. And the so like that, but to craft a perfect soundtrack is almost impossible. And what sucks is that not all the songs end up on the album. Like right. there are, there are music cues in Jackie Brown that are from like Coffee or Foxy Brown or some of the Jack Hill films that aren't on the soundtrack that I wish were um uh or like um uh, a good example might actually be Goodfellas. Layla's not really on or not Layla um My Way by um Sid Vicious Sid is Vicious, not on the yeah. soundtrack and I wish that that were on the soundtrack cuz it would just be one more great thing to have in that a compendium uh but also gangs of new york doesn't have two alternate versions of uh the hands that built america which i think sucks because the end credits version of that song is better than the single version of that song uh for my money um so yeah i'd say that those two albums though jackie brown and um welcome to my nightmare like really really my pop out ones fantastic uh number nine name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they put out Oh, um, well, I've, I've kind of touched on a couple of names where that would be the case where I'm always willing to give people like Kevin Smith. I'll always go to a Kevin Smith film, um, and whatnot. Um, I'll put out Rob Zombie on that because he's made interesting choices with his career that don't always jive with his fan base or jive with music fans. Uh, I think educated horses is actually an amazing album, um, because it's so different out of him. And I enjoy when people go out of their comfort zone a lot. 
Um, but he kind of won my trust with that album because I'm like, man, even when he's doing slower ballads or like different sounds, he still sounds incredible in the what he wants to do is getting across. So I'll always give him a shot. Even if I don't like the album, like I'll like Hellbilly deluxe two was fine, but I, I loved giving it a chance, you know, like sick Bubblegum and, uh, what, which are two kind of like, uh, tracks off the album that I don't think everybody thinks about, uh, specifically what those are fun jams. And I, I'll give him a shot every time out the bat. This is a guy who like loves universal monsters. So that'll always kind of attach myself to it. Yeah, we um, being a Philly podcast, I have to I have to mention uh, we just want him to finally do this Broad Street Bullies uh, film that he's been kicking around forever. Like and I want it from him. I want to see what I want to see what Rob Zombie not being Rob Zombie uh, or what people expect of Rob Zombie uh, looks like in cinema. Do you know what sucks? Because I have the same thing with another project and it's uh, Raised Eyebrows. Uh, the Groucho Marx movie he was going to do based off Steve Stollier's memoir. I'm glad that movie's getting made now with Jeffrey Rush and um, um, Oren Moverman, uh, who did um, uh, the Beach Boys uh, film, um, uh, the one that John Cusack was the in. The Cusack, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of it, but that that film was good. And I, I, I trust Uverman with the material. But I think people don't give him credit, Rob. I know exactly to what I can imagine out of picking parts of his films out, what raised eyebrows would have been under him. And it would have been a very tense sunset Boulevard movie. And that's something I wish people would have, would have taken a chance on. That's why I want to take a chance on him too, is because this guy can't make anything other than a horror movie. Right. And I, and I'll tell you something right now. The monsters is a fun movie. Just have fun. Just have fun with that movie because it it feels like the show. It's corny. It's cheesy, and the ending's a little weird. But because it kind of ends like we're gonna have a whole series of monster movies at Netflix. But you know, I want to give him a shot like that because I want to see the Broad Street Bullies two film. Same same way, like I want to watch uh, Hit Somebody. Like I want yeah. that project to happen. Like hockey movies, we have a dearth of them out there. I wish we had more hockey movies. Miracle can't stand on its own and slap shot. Like we need more. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. If somebody out there is listening with disposable dollars to give to Rob Zombie to make that Broad Street Bullies movie, make it happen because one of my dreams was dashed. At least let Nate has his have his dreams yeah, come give true. Give me something. <laughs> give me something. What, what have you ever done for me, random what billionaire? Have you done for me. <laughs> Well, the 10th and final of the Top 10 Countdown, what is your favorite John of all time? I think the answer is going to be obvious. <laughs> you, and you'd think it would be film related, but no, it's it's Jack Penny. Yeah. Um, I've talked about this a lot in the last two years since starting a podcast, but the amount of introspection and calm that I feel from Jack always takes me to a place that is irreplaceable in my, uh, in my brain um, and in my soul. Um, when I am feeling at my worst, my absolute worst, I put on Jack's show. Even if I've heard the episode a hundred billion times, I will put it on and I will feel very calm because I'm focusing on Jack and his gang. And at times... Jack's own problems, because he is a flawed human being as a character, give me perspective on my own situation. 
I think that's the one thing about Jack that doesn't get accounted for because everybody will say he's great because he, he, he exemplifies the, like the, the way you portray the most flawed character in the world. And I'm like, yeah, but do you realize how often that relates to your day-to-day life? Because even if we're not a miser or we're not a would-be Lothario or we're not a, uh, a bit like uneducated um, and thinking that Captain James Lawrence said something that you think John Paul Jones said, um, which is a running gag, you know, like that stuff we relate to. And I like feeling like there's a tissue from all those years ago that seems to be speaking to me. I know he's not. I'm not dumb. But I I get the feeling that everybody else gets when they hear the thing that they love. And you feel like you're in a family that you've always had in addition to the family you physically have in front of you. It's a family thing. So his my John for him will always exist because he's just never failed to keep me warm and safe in a way that not everything in my life does. My girlfriend being the exception to that. It's those two that have to duke it out in some kind of Thunderdome. <laughs> Jack Benny zombie and my girlfriend. Let's see if they, let's see who comes out on the other side. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. Well, yeah. if these cool cats and kittens would like to find out more about you, what's the best way to track you down on the internet? Uh, you can find me in an alley somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, head on over to at Ballyhoo Review on Twitter. Uh, R-E-V-U-E, because I'm clever. Ha-ha! <laughs> uh, uh, and you can find uh, Ballyhoo Review Pod on Instagram. Um, and you can find um, on the ba- on the Ballyhoo uh, Review pages, you'll find our link tree or a link to the latest episode. I'm also on Real Nerds Podcast. Um uh, which is a weekly film review show with the wonderful Ryan Frost, Brad Haig, and Corinne Westerman. Uh, you can find us at Real Nerds on most uh, social media platforms. Um, and uh, if you're looking for uh, for some fun Jack Benny stuff, now that you are all so entranced by this dead comic you've never heard of, uh, <laughs> uh, you can come to the International Jack Benny Convention uh, February 17th through the 19th. Uh, just sign up and uh, get a link and you'll be there. Oh, man. Zach, thank you so much for doing this. Like, I'm so glad we finally got a chance to to do this in my in my wares. Um, you know, you were gracious enough to to invite me on the Yesteryear Belly Review um, to talk, as we said, about A Thousand Clowns and being able to, you know, scratch that film itch that I don't get to uh, that I don't get to flex. I don't get to use that muscle as much as I used to. So I I am 100 um, percent appreciative and grateful um, for your invite and your friendship. So and for doing this, man, I want to thank you for giving me a nice place to talk with a good friend about the things that I enjoy. And and hopefully, uh, hopefully positivity came out of the the more tense conversations we had about the film world. And uh, and, uh, this is a treat. I I don't always get to do this with other podcasts. I really appreciate having an opportunity to be uh, aboard any show that I can. And yours was one that I was excited to do because I'm like, Oh boy, it forces me to think about things that I love. Damn it. Why can't my brain just be random as shit anymore? Um, but no, thank you so much, sir. And we want you back on the Ballyhoo. We kn- I know we've talked about a couple of titles from the new wave. Uh, so, uh, jo- uh, yo, 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 that's my John listeners. Nate's coming back for that and so much more. I guarantee it. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, is there anything you'd like to tell these fine people before we leave? <sighs> In the immortal words 
of Abraham Lincoln. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dude! My thanks again to Zach for joining me on the show today. His podcast, The Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, is available at ballyhoo-review-podcast.com and or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you're looking for a good episode to check out, maybe try, uh, I don't know, episode 73 about a thousand clowns featuring me. Follow the socials at Ballyhoo Review on Twitter and at Ballyhoo Review Pod on Instagram. And the virtual Jack Benny convention is this weekend, February 17th through the 19th. Visit jackbenny.org for more details. Links to all of those are in the show notes. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the Yo That's My John podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you want to give us a little rate and review, there's a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world in it for you. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. And guys, while you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get all of the updates delivered straight into your inbox. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yothatsmyjohn for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Yo That's My John. And search Yo That's My John on YouTube to find the Yo That's My John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. Well, the football season is over. And you know what? Much respect out to the Philadelphia Eagles. You guys played an amazing season of football. And well, you didn't win the Super Bowl, but you won the Super Bowl of my heart. I love you guys. Fly, Eagles, fly. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be... Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs> <laughs>